Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 13, Aldfrith and the Last Years of Single Dynasty Rule. After the death of Edgefrith at Necton's Mere in 685, the nobility of Northumbria had to look for a new king. They found their new ruler in Aldfrith, Edgefrith's half-brother. Aldfrith would go on to become a notable king of Northumbria, praised particularly by Bede, but his reign would signal the beginning of the end for the monopoly on power exercised by the descendants of Athelfrith, who had ruled a united Northumbria continuously since the days of Oswald. Aldfrith was seemingly a very marginal figure in Northumbrian politics prior to 685. He was the son of King Oswiu and an Irish princess called Fiend, and he was possibly, although whether or not this is true isn't 100% certain, possibly he was illegitimate. When Edgefrith died, Aldfrith was away on Iona at the monastery there, studying religion. He may have been in his 50s, exactly how old he was is unknown, but the sources generally agree that he was not exactly a spring chicken, as it were, when he came to the throne. In the testimony of Bede, Alcuin, a figure we'll meet in a later episode, and various anonymous chroniclers, Altfrith is unanimously praised for his wisdom and his love of religion. None of them suggest that he had anything like the energy or the dynamism of his half-brother. It's remarkable, then, that such an unassuming figure as Altfrith could become king of Northumbria, which had never been an especially peaceful kingdom, without apparent civil war. That his accession was apparently peaceful may suggest something of the prestige that Oswiu's line had achieved at this point. It may also indicate some influence from Aldfrith's maternal relatives in Ireland, the powerful Weenail clan in Ulster, and probably by extension from the Dalriadans. Since Aldfrith was older, it is probable that the nobility and Northumbria's neighbours believed that he would be a more docile king than his predecessor had been, thus encouraging them to advance his claim to the throne. Possibly also following the chaos of Nectansmere, the Pictish Dulriadan alliance that had killed Edgefrith may have exerted pressure on Northumbria to install Aldfrith, a man with whom they were familiar from his years at Iona. If their hope was that Aldfrith would be a more peaceful ruler, their gamble seems to have paid off. Unlike Edgefrith, Aldfrith made attempts to encourage peace with Northumbria's neighbours. He was especially close to the Dulriadans, in particular the abbot of Iona, Adavnan, at whose request he released prisoners taken by the Northumbrians during Edgefrith's raiding north of the Forth and Clyde. His reign also saw signs of economic prosperity in Northumbria. He was the first king, for example, to mint silver coins instead of the old golden variety. 
These new silver coins were called sheatas in Old English, which is where the word shilling ultimately derives from, while the gold coins used previously were called thrimsas. Anglo-Saxon thrimsas had been modelled on Frankish gold coins, but across Western Europe in the 7th century, the gold content of coins in Francia and England began to drop dramatically in a process called debasement. This reduced the coin's value, and in response rulers began looking for alternative metals. A more available metal was silver. Northumbria was not alone in melting silver coins around this time. Other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms began to do the same thing, but where Aldfrith seems to have innovated was that he was the first king in England to pioneer the practice of writing the ruler's name on a coin as a means of asserting authority that his successors across England very eagerly took up. Besides his use of silver coins, Aldfrith's domestic policy is mainly dominated by his long-standing feud with Wilfred. If you'll recall from the previous episodes, Wilfred had been the troublesome Bishop of York, Hexham and Ripon, who had regularly fallen out with both Oswiu and Edgefrith, not to mention his fractious relationship with the Archbishops of Canterbury. Since being expelled from York and Ripon, Wilfred had continued to be a thorn in the sides of Northumbrian monarchs. Aldfrith sought to resolve this issue by restoring Wilfred to York and Ripon. This required the cooperation of the Mercian king Ethelred, suggesting that in the south as well as the north, Aldfrith encouraged cordial relations with Northumbria's neighbours. Wilfred seemingly did not like Aldfrith, probably because of his relation to Iona. If you recall, Wilfred was a long-time partisan of the Roman way of doing things, and thus Aldfrith's time as a monk in Iona was certain to annoy Wilfred no end. What seems to have really soured their relationship, though, was the fact that Aldfrith did not support Wilfred's desire to regain control of his entire Northumbrian diocese. The Bishopric of York had long had an extremely large pastoral area, which covered most of Northumbria. This was not a good system, since pretty much everybody recognised that it meant the church couldn't efficiently provide pastoral care to all of its dependents. In 677, after Wilfred's exile from Northumbria, Archbishop Theodore had broken up this large diocese to better facilitate pastoral care. Wilfred had always been extremely jealous of the land that he saw as his right as bishop, so he obviously was not happy with Theodore's actions. Upon returning to Northumbria, he was equally unhappy to find that Aldfrith had no intention of restoring any of the lands to him. Rather, Aldfrith maintained the subdivisions that Theodore had instituted. The issue seems to have come to a head in 692, when Wilfred finally broke again with Aldfrith and went into voluntary exile in Mercia. Due to his continued troublemaking, in 702-3, Archbishop Beotwald of Canterbury convened a council at Ulsterfield to try and resolve the feud again. But here it was decided that Wilfred, who had been made Bishop of the Middle Angles by King Ethelred of Mercia, should give up all of his episcopal titles and retire to the monastery at Ripon as a monk. Wilfred, needless to say, didn't accept this, and instead took his claim to Rome, personally petitioning the Pope to intervene on his behalf, with the caveat that this time he would be willing to settle for just regaining Ripon and Hexham. These petitions were ultimately unsuccessful, and this marked the effective end of Wilfred's episcopal career.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is probable that Wilfred's feud with Aldfrith may have been partially political, since after Aldfrith's death in 704, Wilfred threw his support behind an Aenwulf, who was not part of Oswiu's family, in fact, about whom we know very little. It makes a certain amount of sense, really, since, after all, Oswiu's kin had done much more to undermine Wilfred's lofty ambitions than to help them. So it made sense for Wilfred to throw his support behind an ambitious new dynasty, particularly since Aldfrit's oldest son, Osred, was only eight at the time of his father's death. The testimony of one Abbess Alflad was that Aldfrit's dying wish was for peace with Wilfred, but Wilfred himself did not want peace with Oswiu's line. But Aenwulf did not want peace with Wilfred. Seemingly, the priest had made himself a pain to other Northumbrian families besides Oswiu's. After being spurned by Aenwulf, Wilfred sheepishly reached an agreement with Osred, whose supporters subsequently triumphed over the Pretender and secured his reign in 705. The faction supporting Osred apparently wanted the continuation of old policies towards the Picts, since after 705, sporadic Northumbrian raids into Pictland resumed. This may lend credence to the idea that Aldfrit's accession to the throne had been forced to some degree by the Pictish-Dorridan alliance, since with Osred, a malleable young eight-year-old, the Northumbrian nobility could effectively impose their own will on the king. Thus, it seems that their will was for continued war with the Picts, thus suggesting that Aldfrit's interruption of peace may have been produced by the Picts imposing their will on Northumbria, much to the resentment of the nobles. This was ultimately self-defeating, though, since it was in a reprisal attack from Pictland that Osred was killed in 716. Bede's view of Osred reflects something of the initial enthusiasm and subsequent disappointment of Osred's reign. He initially welcomed the young king as a continuation of Aldfrit's learning and support for religion, but he soon came to be disillusioned by what he saw as neglect of religious houses. It is possible that rather than neglecting religious houses generally, Osred just neglected Wehrmuth Jarrow, since at Beverley, Osred seems to have been a great patron of religion. Specifically, the monastery founded there around 700 by John, Bishop of York. However, in the 9th century chronicles, the view of Osred as a violent and impetuous youth prevailed. Archaeologically, there is some support for a breakdown of royal government under Osred, the silver coinage begun by Aldfrith, for example, vanishes under his son, and it was not revived in Northumbria for many, many years. Osred's death in 716 is a major moment in Northumbrian history. It's annoying, considering that we know so very little about him and about his reign. With his death, the monopoly on power wielded by the descendants of Athelfrith, begun by Oswald, came to an end. The line continued, and it produced future kings, 
but it now had to contend with other families who were just as capable of mustering support needed to claim the throne. Given how fractious Northumbrian politics had always been, it's arguable that the Athelfrithing's monopoly on power would inevitably come to an end at some point. And indeed, it seems that with Edgefrith's death, the decline of the Athelfrithing dynasty really, truly began. In the next episode, we will look at how this collapse of a dynastic monopoly played out, and we will meet the new dynasty that rose to take its place. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I just wanted to say, I realise that it's been quite a long time since my last episode. I wanted to briefly explain why that was, and reassure you that now I am definitely back. I mentioned a while ago that I recently got married, but that's not all that's been going on. Um, Besides getting married, I've also been in the process of emigrating to the US and moving into my first home with my now wife. That's been an extremely exciting but also extremely busy period and there's just been a lot of things coming up. Any of you who've ever bought a house or moved into a new house I'm sure will understand. As a result, time kind of got away from me a bit and the podcast kind of just went onto the back burner for a few weeks. I am back though. I've planned out and scripted out several episodes into the future, so they will be coming out at the regular two-week intervals from here on out. I hope you understand and I hope that you will continue to follow with me on this journey as we continue our exploration of Anglo-Saxon history. I just wanted to briefly explain what was going on there. I hope you are all doing well, and I will see you next time on the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.